0: So, you've heard this a few times already in this series.
1: This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the hurt Treasurer hurt knows the rule on
0: crops. Scott Morrison, as Treasurer, holding up a lump of coal in Parliament. It's
1: coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. And
0: that's because this is how Australia is seen around the world. A country in love... With coal it's
1: Coal that has ensured for over a hundred years the deputy that Australia Prime Minister. has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity to Australian business.
0: Today, we're looking at what is at the heart of this series.
1: Our plan for net zero by 2050 is the plan that I believe Australians want.
0: What's behind the weak targets? The lack of ambition. I think many Australians will just be shaking their head in disbelief as what's been done. The Prime Minister's losing their jobs over climate policies. The intensity of the fires, floods and heatwaves.
2: It's coal. Isn't it amazing what this little black rock can do? It's
0: fossil fuels. In this episode, we're going to jump through history. Look at Australia's relationship with coal and gas. And how it has influenced decades of policy and political debate. I'm Graham Redfern, and this is Australia versus the Climate. The shocking story of how Australia's behaviour across decades has made it a climate change outcast. Part 4 The fossil fuel industry's grip on Australian climate policy.
4: A Greenpeace investigation has leaked thousands of comments that various governments, including Australia, made on an international climate report.
0: Last week, we got more evidence of the Australian government's support for
5: fossil fuels. According to documents seen by the ABC, Australia asked to change a paragraph that was calling for coal-fired power stations to be phased out.
0: Australia pushed the world's leading climate science body to water down what it will say in a major report about the need to phase out coal. Documents leaked to Greenpeace show the government argued that fossil fuel plants could continue by using carbon capture and storage. A highly controversial technology that's had almost zero success at power plants.
6: Saying that carbon capture and storage isn't being properly considered by the panel's report. Uh, in another suggested change, an Australian official raises an issue with a paragraph that says that the, the fossil fuel lobby has been able to really shape the climate change debate, including in Australia.
0: The report had a list of the world's major coal and gas producers. And another suggested change from Australia uh, was in a paragraph that, that put Australia up there with uh, some of the biggest coal consumers. Australia wanted its name deleted from that list. So those are some of the changes that Australia has asked uh, for, but then that goes back to the panel for final approval. the? This is one of many examples of the Morrison government backing fossil fuels while saying it takes the climate crisis seriously absolutely critical to Australia's future. And we'll keep on mining. Of course we'll keep on mining. Only in the last month, it's approved the expansion of four
1: coal mines. Oh. Yeah, we, we will keep mining the resources that we're able to um, sell on the world market. Now, we obviously anticipate that over time well, demand for these things may change. But I
7: tell you the-
0: Resources Minister Keith Pitt celebrated coal being dug up at the most controversial mining project in the country's history. Here at
7: the Carmichael Mine at Adani. We can see coal's actually coming out, getting put on the ground.
0: The Adani Carmichael Mine in Queensland.
7: This coal means jobs. It means driving and strengthening our economy. It means opportunities for Australia. And, of course, it means royalties and taxes that help to pay for the services. The government
0: has announced hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for new gas developments, paying companies to open up massive gas basins and promising to spend $600 million on a new gas power plant. Get more gas,
1: more often and more reliable, paving the way ultimately for a world-leading Australian gas hub. to support high
0: A reasonable person might wonder, how does all this make sense? But none of this is new.
5: To you and me, one coal mine looks pretty much like any other.
8: Back in Queensland, the BHP blokes
5: operate
0: some of the most profitable coking coal Let's go back to the early 90s. The profits from BHP's
7: worldwide coal interests end up back home in Australia. And you don't need to be a Rhodes Scholar to work out what that means to our economy by the early 90s, the resource industries themselves had suddenly pricked up their ears and, and thought, this is potentially a problem for us.
0: Graham Pierman has been there from the very beginning. He's a pioneering scientist. He's briefed three Australian Prime Ministers on climate change and has been researching it for more than 50 years.
7: We don't want them to close down the use of fossil fuels um, and we have to counter that, and they were doing that in a number of ways. So those companies were actually doing a lot of fouling, if you like, of the whole idea of action on uh, climate change, getting sceptical scientists to come in, particularly from the US, and make presentations uh, to convince people. And I think this was the end of my naive first couple of decades in as a scientist in this area, where I really believed that if we produced good science, that would lead to good policy. And, of course, it didn't.
9: The fossil fuel lobby set up these wildly overblown threats and wildly uh, pessimistic warnings about the dire economic consequences of Australia doing anything, and they've sort of become the wallpaper of the debate in Australia.
0: This is Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia.
9: The debate has sort of been the same endless movie on endless rerun, repeat, and it's still going in the lead-up to Glasgow, which kind of blows my mind a bit.
0: So, Adam, when we're talking about fossil fuel industries, we should sort of quickly set out what we're talking about.
10: Yeah, so the short story is Australia has vast amounts of fossilised energy that is dug up, burned, and emits vast amounts of greenhouse gas. Adam Morton is Guardian Australia's Climate and Environment Editor. Coal still provides more than 60% of Australia's electricity and is used in steelmaking, gas is used in power generation to a lesser extent and in heating and some manufacturing. And Australia, of course, is also the world's largest coal and second largest gas exporter. Companies selling Australian fossil fuels overseas ripped about $70 billion in revenue last year. But as big as this sounds, the workforce is not massive. There are only about 70,000 direct jobs in coal mining, oil and gas extraction and fossil fuel power. The jobs in fossil fuels are obviously not nothing that incredibly important to those people and those communities that depend on them need to be looked after, but it is less than 1% of the national workforce. The influence of fossil fuels in the
8: early days of the climate debate was often blunt. There oh, well, so many examples. I, I think if one that jumps to mind is going back to the, um, when Howard was first elected as Prime Minister.
0: Erwin Jackson is the Director of Policy at the Investor Group on Climate Change. Thirdly, or, or is it fourthly... But, um, He's talking about the period after John Howard's coalition government came to power in 1996. I would make
5: absolutely certain that we did nothing to prejudice uh, our fossil fuel industries and our capacity to export
8: we were negotiating the Kyoto Protocol. We'd agreed internationally, as I said, the developed countries should have legally binding commitments. He needed to make a decision about whether that would be the Australian government's position under the Kyoto Protocol. You know, I remember there was there was a period of about three months just after the election, where the government was, was having to make that decision. Um, the US were putting pressure on them. Others were putting pressure on them. And the day before it went to cabinet, uh, Warwick Parra, who was the energy minister at the time, wrote, to all of the major fossil fuel industry groups and major players um,
5: and encourage them to contact the Prime Minister. Now, if people in this chamber are interested in increasing our export income, if they are interested in addressing our foreign debt, if they are interested in creating more real jobs, you would at least expect they would say, well, let's do this for the coal
0: industry. Warwick Parra is just one example. He was a coal mining executive. Coal is our largest export commodity and it's important that we uh, maintain that. In 1984, he became a senator but continued to have interest in at least one coal company until 1996.
5: I myself come from the coal industry and very proudly come from the coal industry. I participated in the major growth of the industry over a period of some 20 years. And it's made up of some very, very fine people, whether they be at the coalface or whether they be at the management level. Around this time,
0: Parra said he didn't believe in the greenhouse effect and that emissions were warming the planet.
8: Then Howard at that point decided that we wouldn't take a commitment to a legally binding target to the international community.
5: It passes me as crazy That some sections of the Australian community want to shut down as soon as possible Mm. those parts of our uh, industries that, that, I mean, it's just
7: foolish.
0: Links between fossil fuel interests and Australian politicians were common. There were also many officials who would champion the industries and were sympathetic to claims that they were key to Australia's economy and should be
7: protected. The person who is most prominent in my mind is Brian Fisher.
0: Clive Hamilton is an author and academic. He was a founder of the Australia Institute, a think tank, in the 1990s. Hamilton is talking about Brian Fisher who led a major government agency that gave advice on the effects of climate policies on the economy. In 1996, Hamilton says Fischer appeared at an event in Germany hosted by the fossil fuel
7: lobby. Fischer himself, I was shocked to see at Bonn in 1996, was on the stage at an event put on by the, the American Petroleum Institute. And there he was standing with, with global fossil fuel lobbyists you know, three others, uh, an Australian public servant, making the same case, shoulder to shoulder, lobbying for the fossil fuel industries. To me, this was just, I mean, it's just, yeah, no public servant should ever do that.
0: We asked Fisher about this event. He told us he was working with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, as well as the Australian government, in 1996. And he went to hundreds of climate events dealing with people from different perspectives, as his role required. He said he does not remember the event in Bonn. The next year, 1997, was the Kyoto Conference. You heard about this in episode one of this series. The fossil fuel industry was gearing up well ahead of this big climate meeting,
9: I remember the fossil fuel companies organised a big conference in Canberra in the lead up to Kyoto and they brought out people like Hugh Morgan from Western Mining. There's
7: no doubt that world food production's gone up with the increase in carbon dioxide Uh, In the atmosphere. So, to actually say that's the issue that's caused all climate change, of course, is
10: a a stretch, it's a bridge too far.
0: Hugh Morgan is a climate skeptic and a very prominent figure in the debate on whether Australia should act on climate change in the 90s. And he's still speaking up about this some 30 years later. You know, carbon dioxide is a minor gas in the atmosphere. We asked Hugh Morgan to speak to us for this series, but he declined. Uh, It's a building
10: block for our society. It's a building block for everything that grows. It's the stuff that we put into our tomato growing areas to grow the crops more, more fast.
9: It was a full press lobbying effort, all pushing towards the idea that Australia couldn't and shouldn't be expected to make the same reductions as the other developed countries.
0: As we mentioned in episode one, before Kyoto, the Australian government commissioned economic modelling to work out how much joining a deal might cost. The agency that did the modelling was called ABARE, the Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics.
7: Brian Fisher was its executive director. The modelling work that ABAR did was extremely tendentious. Uh, economic impacts at forecasts were grossly exaggerated. Uh, the modelling itself was partly paid for by the fossil fuel industries.
9: It was used to make these you know, quite wild predictions about the economic consequences of reducing emissions. The Commonwealth Ombudsman
0: found that big industry had spent $660,000 on the modelling between 1994 and 1998. That modelling led to the Howard government insisting that it would continue to increase emissions under the first global climate agreement. Brian Fisher has told us that he stands by the modelling and he would have preferred it was funded fully by the government instead of needing external money.
11: Well, I mean, you see a pattern in Australia's behaviour over the last 30 years, which the, the guiding principle seems to be to shelter its domestic fossil fuel and mining industries from real, any real impact of the international negotiations. Alden Mayer
0: is a veteran of international climate negotiations. For three decades, he worked on climate policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists in the United States.
11: You saw that in insisting on an emission increase under Kyoto rather than a reduction. Uh, you've seen it all the way along. And I don't think anything has really changed in, in the motivation there. Clearly, Australia is perceived as doing the bidding of its domestic fossil fuel industries and energy intensive exporters and aluminum and, and mining and, and not really the interest of the Australian people. Irwin Jackson again.
8: So essentially, what Australia is saying is to the international community, which you can imagine going down like a lead balloon in many places, um, we are going to continue to get wealthy on the back of polluting the planet um, and stuff the rest of you.
12: Governments are bought. And I would argue the Australian government has been a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry for as long as I've been involved in politics, right back from 1989 till I left in 2015 and to this day.
0: Christine Milne went to several COPs as an Australian Green senator and leader, and is a strong critic of the role played by fossil fuel industries. Milne says she saw their influence at international meetings up close.
12: In the early days of the cops, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Australian government took a number of NGOs as part of their government delegation. And they were both environmental NGOs and business NGOs. So the fossil fuel industry was directly represented in those government delegations and had access to anyone and everyone as part of the negotiation process. The fossil fuel industry had huge advantage at those COPs because it could go and speak with every government delegation and many of those delegations also had fossil fuel interests. Uh, They had their finger on the pulse in these negotiations. The fact that they spent the money every year to go to the COPS and were very prominent in the COPS tells you that they thought it was a very worthwhile investment of their time.
10: Adam, you've been to COPS. Did you see fossil fuel reps there? Yeah, of course. They're well organised and they're in every part of the talks, really. They're in government delegations and they hold their own side events to promote their interests Often on what are builders, clean solutions that could give those industries a long future.
0: Yeah, and then what they're also doing is they're constantly talking to their country's delegations. They're, They're allowed to go into meetings. I've been in what they call stakeholder briefing meetings for the Australian government at these COPS, and there are members of the industry that are sat in the rooms asking really very, very detailed questions about tiny parts of the process. They know exactly what's going on, and the reason they know is because they are worried that these processes will introduce rules or regulations that will in some way impede them doing their business. They are very well informed and they're very well connected. Oh,
9: hello. Hello. i just heard a man out there saying no-one's asked about the carbon tax. Oh, I think it's probably one of our
4: meetings.
0: After the break. Oh,
9: hello. I said I'd just like to ask one. Sure.
0: A time when climate politics in Australia was as angry and divisive as it's ever been.
9: Why did you lie to us? Right? Well, I can, I can talk to you. And why minute. are you continuing well, to lie and say, well, you know?
4: Well, I can give you an answer right now if you will let me. Uh, what I want to do is put a price on carbon pollution. Big polluters are going to pay. I understand. Yeah, I'll say so this a hundred
9: twelve.
4: Our climate is changing, and the government should act.
0: It's 2011.
4: And after all that analysis has been done, most economists and experts also now agree. The best way is to make polluters pay by putting a price on carbon.
0: The Gillard government is trying to introduce a carbon price.
4: So that is the policy of the government I lead. And that is the plan which is before the House now.
12: When it comes to the
4: campaign to sell the carbon tax, it's all-out war.
0: It's a time when the climate policy debate in Australia was particularly
7: volatile. Do you accept the fact that you've stolen an election with a false promise. Oh,
4: Alan, what a load of nonsense. There were ugly scenes in Parliament today with the Prime Minister called a coward and a liar during an explosive debate on the carbon tax.
6: I think that the Australian public are entitled to feel absolutely and utterly ripped off by this. I think if the Prime Minister wants to make, politically speaking, an honest woman of herself, she needs to seek a mandate for a carbon tax, and she should do that at the next election.
0: The influence and power of the fossil fuel industry was on full display.
4: The Coal Association will step up its attack by taking part in a major advertising campaign against the carbon tax. The government has abandoned its super-profits tax and come up with a new watered-down minerals tax. Not everyone's happy... But it moves things forward, whether you're a coal miner in the Bowen Basin, a contractor in Karratha, an opal miner in Cooper Pedi, or a young worker in Sydney.
6: There's absolutely nothing to be proud of. There's absolutely...
10: Nothing to celebrate. Recording. Right. Um, I'll pop myself on mute and take my video off.
0: Greg Combey was the climate change minister in the Gillard government.
10: Talking. Um, so a lot of the questions I'll frame, covers. can you tell us about it or what were your reflections upon this yeah. kind of moment? And...
6: The period during which I was minister for climate change was easily the most difficult in my working life, you know, and I've been in a lot of difficult things as a trade union official hugely complex industrial disputes and negotiations and corporate collapses and heaven only knows what, but that was really difficult.
13: Climate Change Minister Greg Combey has spent the past five weeks out on the road selling the carbon tax. With Parliament back now, the government... It
0: was his job to get the contentious carbon price laws through Parliament.
13: Quote from your speech that we've all seen today, millions of households will be better off under a carbon price. They're your words. What exactly are you promising?
0: He had to deal with fossil fuel industry leaders who strongly oppose being forced to pay for their carbon pollution.
6: The Prime Minister took her campaign to the coalface in the Hunter Valley where several miners told her they're worried about losing their jobs.
4: I thank them very much for raising with me what's on their mind and I'm very clear that I can look them in the eye and assure them there's a great future in coal mining here and around the nation.
6: When I was developing the carbon pricing mechanism and designing the clean energy legislation, one of the major tasks was dialogue with emissions intensive industries. I'm a coal mining engineer, by the way. It was my original training, so I know the industry very well. They couldn't pull any of the bullshit they go on with, with me at least. And I think they knew that. So they just adopted an incredibly aggressive stance.
0: Conbay recalls being with Treasurer Wayne Swan at a meeting.
6: And I remember Wayne Swan and I met them on one occasion in Parliament House and all the senior executives of the coal mining companies, most of which are international firms, of course. They were just disgusting in their disrespect. It was a kind of abusive meeting. Um, They were incredibly aggressive, threatening, you know, threatening us with marginal seat campaigns and the like. Totally irresponsible sort of position that they had, and they did it on numerous occasions. I remember one meeting I had with them up in my electorate office in, in Newcastle in Cardiff. Combay was coming up with ways
0: to deal with methane, a highly potent greenhouse gas that's released at coal mines, and
6: then using it to generate power. All of which was completely technically feasible. All the technology was available, had been for years, um, and they fought me bitterly over it. But during the time that we're in that meeting, they also released a report and briefed journos and the like to blow things up with more false claims and the like and didn't even have the courtesy of letting me know. I came out of the meeting and farewelled them all, shook hands, bye-bye, um, and then found that, you know, I had this major media storm on my hands um, that they'd blown up while we are in the meeting. They, they just did things like that, so they were incredibly aggressive.
4: Thousands of demonstrators chanting liar and ditch the witch have denounced Julia Gillard's carbon tax at a colourful protest on the front lawns of Parliament House. She lied!
8: She lied
7: to you! Trust the people to know the truth.
8: This is a tax on on every single Australian. It's a tax on you.
13: Another anti-carbon tax rally in front of Parliament today. Have you considered addressing it?
6: No, I haven't. I haven't been invited either. And uh, if it's uh, anything like the last one, I wouldn't want to appear there. Well, what if it's
13: not like the last
6: one? What is um, It's a pretty different landscape now uh, because things have moved so much internationally in 10 years. Uh, but they were the worst. You know, a lot of others, like the steel sector was um, One Steel and Blue Scope Steel at the time were the two producers. I got to really like the chief executives of those two firms. I trusted them, uh, people of integrity, were able to work together very well. We designed support packages to protect jobs, make sure why wasn't wiped off the map, etc.
13: You might recall that the opposition leader, Tony Abbott, declared that Wyala was at risk of becoming a ghost town, an economic wasteland, if the carbon price was implemented. In fact, he warned the city would be wiped off the map.
11: No
7: Wyala wipe out there on my TV, no Wyala wipe out there on my TV, no Wyala wipe out there on my TV, shocking me right out of my brain. Shocking me right out of my brain.
6: You know, they were really, they were people who put their position firmly, but I, I knew that they were decent people and I could deal with them. And that was pretty much the case with most of the other industry interests that I handled. But the coal industry were really quite something. Coal were in a world unto themselves.
0: So, Adam, this was a crazy time. The carbon price legislation is in. Uh, Labor got it in with the help of the Greens and the Independents. It's doing its job and it's saying that you can't pollute the atmosphere for free, Um, but it was met with like a huge amount of resistance from both politics and the fossil fuel
10: industry. Tell me why you think this period really stands out. What this period of time shows when... Australia actually did introduce a carbon price for two years and it was having an impact. Is what happens when these powerful forces in the economy feel betrayed. It was a rare moment in Australian public life in the last few decades when that very close relationship between these powerful industries and the government splintered. You know, you really perhaps saw their power then more than any other time with the full force of the campaign that was brought against what. Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and their governments were trying to do. Now, Labor failed, and they didn't fail just because of fossil fuel industries. They failed for a whole range of reasons. But certainly those campaigns and the strength of connection between those industries and others still in politics played its part. In the end, the carbon price which was having an effect on reducing emissions, was repealed when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister in 2013.
7: ...hearing it, so let me say it again, the government of Australia has changed. For the foreseeable future, coal is the foundation of our prosperity.
10: And that effectively restored the relationship between government and fossil fuels.
6: We had an emissions obsession that needed to be broken and it's now changed.
13: Dzień dobry.
12: The Enable consists of twenty members, while today thirteen of them will play for you. The instrument which they play are natural horns. I invite you to listen
0: to the concert. The next moment I want to focus on is in
13: 2018. Na COP24.
0: at The COP held in the Polish city of Katowice. Thank
3: you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I am very pleased that... Both Katowice and Poland are the location where such important matters connected with climate policy and the implementation of Paris agreements are being discussed. Um, Work is underway on the... Here,
0: the alliance between fossil fuel industries and the Australian government was on full, uncompromising display.
6: My solemn duty to protect America
0: and its citizens. The world had changed massively. Scott Morrison is the Australian Prime Minister and Donald Trump is President of the United
7: States. The United
6: States will withdraw from the Paris
11: Climate Accord.
2: So I remember going to a side event that the US was putting on. Richie Merzian is a former climate diplomat. Now, with the Australia Institute, he was in the audience. And it was, it was during the Trump administration about other technologies, like how fossil fuels really can just play a role in climate change. And it had some sort of spin around carbon capture and storage and around clean coal and around gas as a transitional fuel. And they were really struggling to find anyone to come and back them in, because this is the Trump administration. But they found an ally to take the panel with them, and it happened to be the Australian ambassador for the environment at the time, Patrick Suckling. The Australian ambassador for environment is the most senior government official on the delegation. And he not only got up on the panel and sat there alongside Trump administration officials, but he had a nameplate that also, for some reason, had an American flag next to his name as well. And then he talked up basically fossil fuels, pretty much, and their role in the transition. Activists crashed the 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 event. And you just kind of wondered what was going on. Like, why is the Australian government deciding that its few public forays would be to back in fossil fuels rather than actually engaging in some of the real technologies or in, in the real initiatives that we should be doing? Like, it's, yeah, it's disheartening.
0: This incident in Katowice really stands out, and it was only three years ago. This event there, you know, you've got Trump saying that climate change is a hoax. He's vowing to save the coal industry. He said he wants to pull the United States out of the Paris deal. I mean, you couldn't think of a country worse than the United States on climate at that point. So Australia decides we're going to rock up to their event to show them support. I mean, the optics are... Terrible.
10: I think that's absolutely true. Remember, Patrick Suckling was representing the Morrison government in Poland. So this is really the Morrison government on stage. And I think one of the key points to make here is how little the Morrison government's message on climate has changed. Basically, we were sucking up the Trump then. Now things have moved in the US and we're finding ways to say we're acting because that's where the international push is and the US has moved under Joe Biden and the UK is calling for significant action under Boris Johnson ahead of Glasgow. But both now and then, the government's position has been that fossil fuels can continue to have a prosperous future long after what a scientific assessment says is justified and after what many economic analyses say is necessary. If we go back to Poland in 2018, the argument that was being made is the same one the government makes today, that coal can have a future due to carbon capture and storage. This is a technology which involves catching carbon dioxide emissions and pumping them underground and storing them there forever, basically, in reservoirs deep underground. We've committed billions of dollars to it over the decades and yielded very little. You heard at the top of this episode that the Morrison government has been pushing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to recognise the role that it says carbon capture and storage, CCS, could play. The government really sees this as Australia's way forward and it's promising hundreds of millions of dollars to try and make it a big part of the solution. Why? Because it can't see or can't admit it sees a world where fossil fuels aren't a big part of the future. We
0: approached a lot of fossil fuel representatives to talk to us for this series, but most declined. One who agreed was Alex Gossman. To
1: some people, you were the bad guy in the room. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's fair to say. Not only in COP, but also back here in Australia. Were you? No, I wouldn't have said we were the bad guys. I mean, I've worked in a number of industries where there's good guys and bad guys.
0: He was the chief executive of the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network, or AIGN, from 2012 until 2016. He went to several cops. The AIGN was created by all Australia's major emitting industries, coal, gas, aluminium, cement. In its early years, it was a central cog in what became known as the greenhouse mafia. But that reputation had softened well before Gosman took the role. I asked him what it was like to
1: represent these industries at Climate Talks. I've always sort of worked on the basis that you be respectful and transparent because at the end of the day you want a government official to pick up the phone when you ring. And, and that's why it's generally been successful. And so I think there was also a good recognition by government officials generally who you were representing and, um, and if you presented your arguments professionally then you would be accepted for the discussion. There are people at these conferences who, in terms of a climate
0: agreement, would see success as being the same as the end of many of the industries you were representing.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's fair. But I think in in some respects, there wasn't an understanding of the industries that we represented. Um, So people say, okay, you know, these are high emitting industries, but On the other, you know, you've got to go back to 20 or 30 years to look at, well, state and federal policies actually encouraged these industries to come here. And that was on the basis of cheap power from coal. So you know, you can't blame people for decisions that were made in a different policy environment. I've always believed the science. That doesn't mean at the end of the day, they'd support putting in place measures that destroy the competitiveness of the industries that you're representing.
0: The point that Gossman's making there has always been quite central, I think, Adam. And it's a point that has been made by many politicians over many years about this debate. And I think a lot of people see the dissonance in it. They hear that groups and politicians and parties and companies believe in the science. But if you're a fossil fuel industry, then can you believe in the science but not affect the profits of your company?
10: And a lot of people will argue that you can't. Yeah, the modern version of this is the government's catchphrase, technology, not taxes, which is really another way of saying people shouldn't have to pay now, industry shouldn't have to pay now, we'll spend a bit on technology and wait for it to magically arrive and deliver the emissions cuts that we are promising to make in the future. Carbon capture and storage, which we spoke about before, is the great example. Billions spent and does not work on coal power. It's ridiculously expensive, works technically, but doesn't operate anywhere at scale. And yet the government is still backing it as an answer down the track. Of course, these arguments get complicated by just how challenging and how difficult a problem the climate crisis is. It's a global problem. And people who say Australia emits just 1.3% of the global total and can't solve it on their own, of course, have a point. And if your frame of mind is that your livelihood depends on an industry that's part of the problem, I can understand how you would look at that and go, why should I have to change? But, of course, it's not that simple.
0: Yeah, that's right. And when we hear this 1.3% figure, it's usually said like that to suggest Australia can't have much of an influence on the world's greenhouse gas emissions, so, you know, why should we bother? And it's an argument that's been made... Well, forever. Firstly, it ignores all the coal and gas we dig up and export to be burned elsewhere. But in terms of Australia's ability to influence the process and drive global action or inaction, I think this series has shown that the country can actually have a big influence.
5: Getting our guys, I encourage them to, to not get engaged in the debate about the science of climate change. Forget that.
0: Another ex-fossil fuel industry representative who agreed to speak was Mitch Hook. Hook is the former chief executive of the Minerals Council of Australia, the main industry group representing Australia's mining companies. He was in charge of the council from 2002 to 2013.
5: I understand the concept except that the real issue is to embrace the agenda and then be part of it. And so... My view about the precautionary principle learned large, and that is if you accept the precautionary principle, then you don't need the science to smack you in the face before you do something.
9: Hook
0: rejects the idea that coal could be phased out in a decade or two.
5: Irrespective of what anybody thinks about coal and the likelihood of it uh, or, or you know, where it's going to be down the track, and you know, I phased out. I mean, the UN Secretary or Deputy Secretary-General came out the other day and said, you know, 10 years out of developed economies and 20 years out of developing economies, well, well good luck. Uh, I mean, that, that's kind of, you know, fairies at the bottom of the garden stuff. Um, you only have to look at what's going on in Asia and the demand for coal. And these plants have only just been built. You know, they've got lives of 30 to 50 years. Um, they're not, they're not going to shut them down.
0: It's good, Adam. We've heard from Hook and Gossman. They've given us an industry perspective. Their view's prominent, It's and it's an important view. But I want to pose a counter view, and it's one shared by a lot of people. It's that if you really did engage heavily with the science, then I think the next thing you might say is not there's this inevitability about all these coal plants and that the industry's got a long life. You would probably say, this is a problem that these coal plants are being built. What can we do about it?
10: Yeah, the, the Morrison government doesn't agree with you there either. Uh, we heard the Prime Minister say on Tuesday that he would set a net zero emissions target, but the country would not be stopping coal or gas production. We really should here, I think, stress the links that continue to this day between the government and the fossil fuel industries in this country. They remain really strong. Scott Morrison's chief of staff is John Kunkel. He's a former deputy chief executive of the Minerals Council. He held that job for six years. A recent former staff member in Morrison's office is Brendan Pearson, who's just been appointed Australia's ambassador to the OECD. Not that long ago, he was the chief executive of the Minerals Council. No one's doing anything illegal by moving between these mining and minerals industries and these very senior political roles. These guys are all acting within the system, of course. That's the issue it really does illustrate how close the links are and just how embedded these industries remain in government thinking.
0: Yeah, I mean, a week or two ago, we had Angus Taylor, emissions reduction minister, sharing on social media, on on Twitter, a press release from gas company Santos about one of its projects. I mean, you know, it's there and gone on the Twitter feed, but this is essentially a, a minister doing public relations for a fossil fuel firm. I mean, Keith Pitt going to the Adani mine and doing a promo video the other week. and We're apparently fine with all this. And many people have been engaged on this stuff for a long time. I mean, we've talked about Brian Fisher earlier um, and the problems people had with his modelling from the 90s. Now, he's been heavily criticised and he's still prominent. He released modelling before the 2019 election, and that was used by the coalition to attack Labour's climate targets. And and I mean, even this year, he's been advising uh, the Morrison government on its modelling of a net
10: zero emissions target. We should also talk about and acknowledge the role of political donations in all this. The resources industry, mining, basically, a lot of them fossil fuels, has made more than $130 million in political donations over the past two decades that we know about. It helps explain why these traditional fossil fuels industries get access and favour we don't yet see in the same way for renewable energy, which just isn't as established. While the links between government and fossil fuels are in some ways as strong as ever, we are seeing movement outside of government. The Business Council of Australia, which is a significant body, backs net zero emissions and wants to see deep cuts of up to 50% by 2030. Even the Minerals Council now backs a net zero emissions target for 2050. And big money is really starting to move one way towards clean energy and away from fossil fuels, especially with the big institutional investors that look after trillions of dollars around the globe. But the real question here is whether within government and within business in Australia, there is a genuine acceptance that these industries are going to have to be massively transformed in a short amount of time. There's a risk here. They're actually just pretending that we can meet these targets. The reality is it won't happen until we have policies and plans in place and there's a broad acceptance that we can't run on fossil fuels indefinitely. We're not there yet. Next, on the final
1: episode of Australia vs. the Climate. It's not about the if or when It's about the how, and the world has to start focusing on the how, and our Australian way
0: focuses on the how. We examine the Australian way, Scott Morrison's plan for reaching net zero. Our plan,
1: most importantly, backs Australians to achieve what they want to achieve when it comes to achieving net-zero emissions by 2050. Australians want to do that, and our plan enables
0: them. I'm your host, Graham Redfern. Australia vs. the Climate was reported and produced by me and Adam Morton. The series producer is Jake Morecambe. Miles Herbert, Karishma Luthria and Joe Coning did additional production... Joe also did the sound design, mixing by Camilla Hannan. Beck Pridham and Thomas Phillips assisted with production. Executive producers are Adam Morton, Miles Martignoni, and Gabrielle Jackson.